0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Courtney, welcome back to another episode.
1: Hello, how are you going?
0: Yeah, good. How about yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Excellent. Sleep deprived, but (laughs) working. (laughs) Yeah,
0: braving the winter.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's
0: winter. Um, So yeah, we had a a really good focused chat today. Yeah. uh, With Dr. Julie G. Who, I guess, she's a, a psychology researcher. Yeah. Um, but is um, has a forest fellowship, so she's doing a postdoc. So she's done her PhD, and she's she was you hear She's at, towards the end of a four year postdoc and doing some really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, and she's kind of. It seems like she's kind of travelled around the world to do different psychology kind of. Uh, Research areas and all that kind of stuff, which is very, very interesting. And, yeah, yeah. Sounds sounds fun.
0: Yeah, including be- being at Cambridge. Yeah. Which you know, just a small, small university. Yeah, exactly. Over in the UK. That's
1: right. Very small. Yeah,
0: but yeah. So this, um, we unfortunately only had limited time with Julie. She's very busy. And, yeah,
1: you know, of course. Getting
0: dragged between meetings and yeah. you know doing work and whatnot. So we're we're treating this one as a bit of an introduction to the sort of work Julie does in the mental imagery space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you'll hear in our conversation, it's really interesting and to be continued as well, um, but we'll let you guys enjoy it. Yeah, but I guess that leaves me the, um, Nice task of welcoming Dr. Julie G to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for Hello. your time. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So would you like just to give the listeners a bit of background about yourself, like what your study areas and, you know, what you're doing now?
2: Yes. So my name is Julie G. I'm a Forest Postdoctoral Fellow at the School of Psychological Science at UWA. And my research focus is on future thinking. So how, um, I guess different ways of future thinking about the future can influence how we feel and in, impact our motivation to behave in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And this has implications for kind of mood and anxiety disorders, which is, has been my focus. But it uh, is also kind of very relevant to any behavioral domains that, you know, motivating healthy behaviors, mm-hmm. reducing unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. Uh, so it's linking what happens in the mind with... Our emotions and then our behavioural patterns mm. as well.
0: Okay. So, just to take a step back, uh, what did you do prior and how did you end up with a postdoc with yeah. Forrest? Yeah.
2: Um, so, I started my undergrad at Sydney Uni um, mm-hmm. actually in a media and communications degree, journalism. Okay. Um, but I did a major in psychology and that luckily allowed me to do an honours um, year in psychology. Mm-hmm. But I only did that after a few years after my undergrad, because I didn't. I was never interested in research first at first.
1: So what did you do in between uh, your honours and your yeah.
2: undergrad? Yeah. So my first job was uh, as a management consultant with yep. Deloitte. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as you do when you don't know what you want to do, really. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> Is that sort of organisational psychology, that type yeah, of stuff? That's yeah, that's what
2: I went into at first, yeah. because I thought that would be relevant, but yep. it ended up being not so what I was expecting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like it still gave me lots of really, really important skills yeah. and knowledge, but it wasn't what kind of didn't really spark my curiosity yeah. that mm-hmm. much. So I worked in that there um, in Sydney for a year and a half. And then I decided to do a master's in London at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they have an Institute of Social Psychology, which is now called psycho- Psychological and Behavioral Science or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. So... That was more me exploring post-grad psychology, but that happened to be more of a European tradition school where it's not the classic experimental behavioral um, oh, okay. psychology. It was more sociology, mm. critical theory. Oh, and, that's interesting. And mm. more European traditions, yep. which was interesting. Yeah. But again... We focused more on qualitative methods. Okay.
1: Yeah, because I think at UWA it's it's very like quantitative to yeah. try and yeah. like really drill into you that psychology is a science. So yeah. you go through yeah, uh, yeah behavioral um, yeah. psychology quite a
2: lot and neuroscience yeah. and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So that, yeah, that's really mm. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's great. And um, did you grow up in Australia or did you grow up uh, for
2: high school and undergrad? I was yeah. in Sydney. Yeah. Okay. Um, but before that, I was in China.
0: In China. Okay. Yeah. And what what part of China?
2: In Xi'an, um, it's where the terracotta warriors are. Oh, okay. okay, yeah, cool. So oh, interesting. The old capital. It's like yeah. Yeah. very ancient. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, after my master's, I realized, yeah. okay, I really need quantitative methods because it, for me, it was too much subjective interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I wasn't sure how I could get into a more quant training program mm-hmm. so I applied for PhDs in the US and I didn't get in um, at the same time I got a job in um, sorry that was I applied for PhDs while I was working on my job post um, the masters yeah but I was yeah I got a job in the UN in the uh, oh. world Food program in Nepal oh, wow. through a contact of a friend um, colleague at, who I used to work with at Deloitte mm-hmm so I was a communications officer in a development job for a year yeah, okay. in Kathmandu. Okay. So during that time, I was looking for research questions and things. And I stumbled upon this uh, article in The Economist mm-hmm. about this field called cognitive bias modification, mm-hmm. which was basically training, automatically training your thinking patterns to be more healthy to um, rather than just relying on traditional talk therapy. Okay. Yeah, okay. You could directly kind of look at your mental habits and then train mm-hmm. those, mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was very interesting and yeah. it was in The Economist. So, thought, okay. oh, this yeah. is quite cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I contacted one of the researchers um, who happened to be my professor now, um, but I actually ended up doing honours with him. So, I moved mm. to Perth mm-hmm. to do honours at UWA. Okay. And then that was a really amazing experience, which I got really good... Experimental research, experience and skills and analysis, statistical mm. learning. So that's how I really got on the research back onto the research path.
1: Yeah. Mm. So your honors and your your PhD and your post grad stuff are all kind of interlinked in that idea of changing your mental habits, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: It's it's basically looking at how different people have different mental habits. Um, and how those habits may be linked to how they feel and how they behave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and whether changing those habits can make it easier for them to change the rest of okay. their experiences. Yeah.
0: So some people might listening might be familiar with cognitive behaviour therapy. Is this similar or in the same family?
2: Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yes, in the sense that it's all looking at cog- – it's all accepting that there is a link between – Our cognition, so our conscious or unconscious thinking processes, Mm -hmm. um, and how we feel, and that all links to behavior. So it's a triangle shape thing that loops back to each other.
0: Yeah, interesting. (coughs) And and before we go on and talk in more detail about your specific research, uh, it sounds like you've got a a, like a strong communications background. That's like a big interest for you. Is that right?
2: Uh, Yes, I, I I enjoy communicating. What I do also because it makes me think about it more clearly. Yeah. Um, and maybe because I did my undergrad in journalism, I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you I find, do it, find it easy?
0: Yeah, yeah. So does that help you kind of promote and dis disseminate your research? Do you think?
2: Yeah, it seems. I definitely. Yeah, I don't have that avoidance of mm. this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I find I find that it always helps me to think when I have to talk to different people about the research, mm-hmm. which I got a lot of experience in during my PhD. So after honours here, um, I was very much looking, while our lab really focused on our attention, so how we pay attention to things in the external mm-hmm. environment, I was more interested in internal mental phenomena, particularly mental imagery, which is this, I'll talk about this later, but yeah. Yeah. it's the imagination-based thinking and... The kind of world-leading expert in that field what happened to be in Cambridge at the time, and Mm -hmm. a colleague, close colleague colleague of our professor here. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to Cambridge to do my PhD with her. Yeah. Yeah. And there, because you live in colleges, everybody is doing different things. Mm -hmm. So you have to at dinners and things you have to talk to people, Mm -hmm. and everyone you know from someone doing theoretical maths um, to you know criminology. Yeah. So, you get used to kind of explaining things Mm -hmm. from an external perspective, which I've then had since coming back to Perth as a Forest Fellow, we have a similar thing there because everybody who's living there is basically doing different things. Right. Yeah, okay. Um, So, we have talks and we have... Yeah. So, it's a good... Yeah, I think that's kind of made it very natural for me to try and explain um, what what I know or what... Yeah,
0: I do. Yeah. So, and so you're living over in the Forest Building? Yeah. Okay, how's that with the view of the Swan River? Is that okay?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's very nice. I think they definitely got the right idea there, yeah. which is if you're close to uni and you have a very nice environment, so we have mm-hmm. an amazing library that I use a lot, mm-hmm. if the environment is conducive to academic work, mm-hmm. then people you know, do a lot of work there and yeah. they want to be doing it, and it's a nice experience. Yeah.
0: So. I've been to an event there, and it's a beautiful setting. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah it's very nice. one of those things where things make sense. Mm. The Set up the provisions really make sense to what they're trying to. do. They
0: achieve. seem to still be doing stuff there as well. Every time I go past, there's more more work. <laughs> there's more doing yeah, there's a second building that's going. <laughs> on. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. It's oh, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. And so, how long have you got with that scheme?
2: Uh, so I've already been doing my forest fellowship for three years. Okay, um, so it's coming to an end soon, and I'll be rolling onto the other grants that I've got which will support my salary but also there are more specific projects yep. that, uh, yeah.
0: H- here at yeah. UWA again? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, okay. That's great. And we'll, So you have to find a new home. Is that right? <laughs>
2: uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, yeah. 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 I'll have plenty of time for that.
1: So yeah. what's, your, what's the fellowship on? So what's like the main um,
2: grunt of your project then? Yes, I've been looking at future thinking, yep. but um, uh, with a particular focus on mental imagery. So, for the fellowship, I've been looking at depression. So, that's mm-hmm. been my focus. Um, so, during my PhD, I found that, I, you know, when people who are experiencing depression compared to healthy people, mm-hmm. they tend to have a different pattern of imagining the future. And I looked at this particularly when they're mind-wandering. So, these are, you know, spontaneous mental events that we barely pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But when we think, remember the past or or envision the future in a mental imagery-based way, and Mm -hmm. if those things are emotional, then it actually has an impact on our emotions in the present moment. Right. And it has impact. It influences how we think the future will turn out. So our judgments about the future, which then will influence our decisions and motivations about what to do in the present. So finding that well, the the pattern that we found was that people who, when they're experiencing depression, um, they tend to lose that spontaneous tendency to imagine, specifically imagine, not verbally think about. Mm-hmm. So sensorily in, experience, pre-experience the future in a positive way. Right. Okay. So you can imagine um, basically the things that enter your mind or the things that are, you know, go through your mind on a day-to-day basis, that is kind of your reality in a way. So the things that are not there, you don't really notice. You just focus on what's there. Mm-hmm. So in depression, it's a lot of negative stuff, but the positive stuff also goes. It, it's absent. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's at the level of even mind-wandering, which can be the okay. implications of that can be, um, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. So do you, do you have an example of maybe like a healthy person's way mm. of imagining the future compared to maybe someone who is, yeah. um, who has depression?
2: Yes, I think, you know, um, we know that healthy people, to be healthy means mm-hmm. you have to be basically deluded Delusionally optimistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because if we're not... Overly positive, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our our minds are biased to begin with. It's optimistically biased. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we tend to think bad things won't happen to us. Um, We focus... It's usually easy when we're in a normal mood or good mood to focus on the things that we hope to happen. And then Mm -hmm. we don't really... We want to avoid, you know, the potential...
1: Is that Problems. kind of like the bias that people have with lottery where, like, you buy a ticket because you're like, yeah, I'm probably going to win. Like, there, there's, like, a, a good chance that I'm going to win with this lottery ticket when in reality it's, like, 0.0001% chance.
2: Is it that yeah. kind of bias
1: that we're thinking about? Yeah, yeah I would okay. say
2: because not everyone buys a lottery, that's yeah, an extreme yeah. example. Yeah. Of, but it is certainly common. Yeah. It's the same process. It's like, mm-hmm. I feel lucky. Yeah, And that's a good thing because, yeah. you know,
1: we, I'm going to get positive things out of it, yeah.
2: Well, mm-hmm. yeah, so if you're not optimistic, then you don't go for things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't go for things, then you won't get anything. That's right, yeah. yeah. So that's what happens in depression. Um, it's very easy to become pessimistic or uh, or too objective about things. Mm-hmm. And then there's no motivation yeah. to try. And then if there's no trying, then there's absolutely nothing that will happen. So you, it's a vicious cycle of withdrawal and then mm-hmm. a lack of positive experiences and yeah. connections with one's environment and people. So, in terms of future thinking, we know that from our work and other people's work that when we when healthy people imagine positive versus negative events, it tends they they experience this subjectively as much more vivid, mm-hmm. they're quicker to generate these events, hypothetical ones in the future. Whereas in depression it's the opposite. They tend to lose this positive bias. Right. Okay. Um so it's Really, the the loss of the positive, mm-hmm. and especially in the future, because we can remember past things um, as positive, but if we think the future is completely bleak, then even good things that's happened is starts to be depressing because mm-hmm. that won't happen again. Or so it's wow. the future is really the thing that motivates our behavior.
0: Yeah, it's like hope. You've got a lot yeah, of hope for the future.
2: We're very future-oriented yeah. Um, yeah. as organisms. And the ability to imagine, not just verbally think about. Mm. So, so the difference between knowing something good or bad can happen mm-hmm. as a piece of knowledge mm-hmm. has different motivational impacts, much lower impacts than if I could pre-experience it in my mind. So I can see it, I can see where it's going to happen, what's going to happen, how... It will feel, mm-hmm. and even better if I can see how I can make that happen. Mm. So it's the imagination-based way of thinking is very concrete. Right. Um, so it forces you to be more concrete. Of course, you can have rosy pictures of, of course. just winning <laughs> prizes everywhere yep. and things. That's not yep. realistic. Yep. So we're talking about realistic things that you believe could happen, and you can use that type of thinking to plan, to yep. pre-experience the the emotional consequences, which Mm -hmm. motivates you to go for it or not go for it. Yeah. So it's a a natural way of thinking that actually is motivating us all the time, but we don't always pay attention to it. Mm.
0: Do, Do you find that it's something that is fairly consistent for people? Because obviously people go through ups and downs in life. Um, based on what happens to them and their experiences and whatnot. And do you find there's a certain personality type or a certain trait that people have that helps them deal with those issues better than others?
2: Um, So in terms of differences in mental imagery use, yes. So we even from the 1800s, we know um, that people differ in how much they're a visual thinker. Mm -hmm. So some people just don't have any mental imagery. They're, They're very, very not visual. Um, so that's just kind of general differences. That's a neural capacity kind of thing. But in terms of within the same person, I think there are fluctuations that fluctuate with mood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the extreme end, our you know where I did my PhD, we did work on kind of people with bipolar disorders. Mm-hmm. So they experience extreme mood swings. Yeah. But the mental image that they would have also differ in those mood. Periods and tense. The the hypothesis is that it actually exacerbates the mood state, so it makes you more out of um, the the swings, more dramatic. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they when they're experiencing mania, um, which is very positive mood, they report having these very vivid, um, compelling, subjectively compelling um, visions of. Future experiences mm-hmm. that they then go on to do, for example, driving uh, buying a Ferrari and then racing down the street, yeah. mm-hmm. because that's, you know, they pre-experience that as extremely positive, and that's the experience they want. So it's a similar process to what, you know, if we're about to go on holiday or we're booking a holiday and we're in a good mood, then we really start to imagine a lot of the good things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when we're in a negative mood, maybe our mental images, um, change in. The emotional content, but also maybe we tend our mind just um, may stop altogether yeah. Yeah. to generate, you know, hypotheticals. Yeah. And in the case of anxiety, people generate a lot of these hypotheticals. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's a surplus of negative hypotheticals.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so how, because you you said before that you kind of like the, the quantitative stuff. How on earth can you measure those kind of feelings in a quantitative way? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so there's a few ways. I mean, um, so you can direct, we give people tasks. So you can make sure that people are doing what you want them to do mm-hmm. and then measure their emotions before and after. Yep, okay. Whether that's subjective report or physiology. Yep. Um. So you can experimentally manipulate what they do at a mm-hmm. specific time in the lab and then measure the things, the changes before and after, whether it's emotions or beliefs or anything. Yeah, okay. Um. For more kind of spontaneous cognition, you would more real time methods would be better. So, for example, the mind wandering work that I was doing, um, we would give people a very boring task that made <laughs> them mind wonder. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really monotonous. But then we had a way in the task where, in real time, they could record when they've been mind wandering, mm-hmm. and then that would allow them to record very briefly. The kind of did it involve mental images, yeah. was a positive, negative, was a future or past-oriented. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and in the real world, the project we're about to start in self-harm in young people that would use a experience sampling app. So you have a phone app and that beeps you eight times a day in, mm-hmm. at random times. And it asks you whether you've had certain behaviors and mm-hmm. thoughts and things. So we try and... If it's just obs- observational, then we try and do it in real time. Mm. But in the lab, we can make people um, – We can you can ask them to do things. Mm. Yeah. It may not happen, um, but there are ways to kind of make sure that they did it. So, for example, a lot of our work is on first-year psychology students. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you want them to simulate a certain future event, um, typically we get them to then write it down after. So we may not use that data, but we can use that data to check that they did the right thing. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so it is it is internal phenomena that is mm-hmm. not very easy to see. So even if you're using a brain scanner,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's not like you can easily see what mental pictures people are having in no, their head. Yeah. Yeah. No.
1: Um, you have to rely on them telling you exactly what they're, yeah, what and, they're the and, and Yeah, and the task,
2: directing them to do things, and you compare the different segments of the task to... Mm-hmm baseline or
1: mm. and i guess like the before and after kind of uh technique there get would get rid of because you were saying before as well that like different people have different levels of visual yeah. imagery and things like yeah. that so the the before and after would get rid of that kind of bias within the general population um is there any way to kind of identify or or i put deal with in quotation marks is not quite the right words, um, people who who don't really have those visual imagery? And is yeah. there an issue with that or is it just... Yeah, it's
2: interesting you ask that yeah. because that work has only been done in the past kind of 10 years. Yeah, okay. Um, so they've identified, you know, people who really have no mental imagery ability and not because they've lost some visual capacity hmm. later on. They just were born without this. So the mm-hmm. way they check that is... Uh, for example, using binocular rivalry methods, so psychophysics. Okay. So because basically when we imagine visually in the mind or sensorily, it functions in your mind as a weak form of perception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So perceptual priming is a thing. So if you see something, then that um, the thing you've just seen is more likely to take over if you uh, be dominant in your system, yeah. visual system. If you then look at two things – through both eyes like basically you have a binocular paradigm where each eye is looking at a different picture and you see which one you see more than Mm -hmm. 50 percent of the time so that's the dominant image yeah right so you can prime that Mm. and so they found that it's similar to looking at a picture of an apple for example if you imagine a red apple Mm. rather than a green apple then you would see the Right. That image so, prime more when you look at the binocular. So library.
1: so people that can, like, that have that, that good visual imagery, if you give them two different images, one in each eye, and you, just before you do that, you give them one of the images beforehand, they're more likely or to see they that image it. more of the time. Yeah. Or they imagine it, yeah.
2: Whereas people who don't have that would get, like, 50-50. Yeah, they're yeah, more at chance. They're more at chance. And, of course, neuroimaging, um, there's, you know, lots of decades of research. This is the The last ten years has been identifying the people with without this. It's called aphantasia. So it's the mind's eye, mind mind blindness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. internal blindness of the mind's mm-hmm. eye. But the research on the neural basis of mental imagery has been you know decades of work on this. So they've shown that you know you're able to activate the lowest level of your visual cortex V one just through imagining. So you're using a top down process mm-hmm. to activate information. In V1, so mm-hmm. it's, it's like your Fractions, primary yeah. sensory cortex is, uh, cortex is receiving information as if it's from the external um, sources, but it's actually okay. internally from memory.
0: Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com or tweet us at means what. And if you have a minute, and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. Yeah.
1: Wow. So okay. So here's a here's a kind of weird side question. Then does that mean uh, I guess people who are blind? If that if that particular section of the cortex still works, they might actually be able to like perceive things in their brain. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> a Sorry. Like <laughs> that's a weird f- question. Sorry, I feel
2: like that's a semi-philosophical question mm. whether yeah. they experience the same because they you know they could the other senses tend to take over their visual cortex. Yeah, true. Yeah, um, mm. but it's not just visual; it's s- visual spatial as well. So they could oh, very much be okay. using touch and spatial location. Yeah. Mm. To form, you know, visual spatial things, but whether that looks the same as us, I don't <laughs> who think. Who so. yeah. yeah, and okay. it would be hard yes. to measure as it well. It would be, yeah. be very tough to measure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, but you know, I have a colleague um, who uh, does not really experience mental imagery. She can't, okay. and, and crazy she claims. <laughs> she claims that she's not impaired, so yeah. it's not necessarily okay. you know that. So it's it's just. Um, is a yeah. yeah basically it means for example when she goes on holiday mm-hmm. she has to take lots of pictures because mm-hmm. it's out of sight out of mind mm-hmm. so oh, she can't bring back okay. visual experiences back okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah but she will remember she really liked this place but not that place yeah. well, same mm-hmm. with going to restaurants mm-hmm. she sees a menu mm-hmm. if it doesn't have pictures on it she doesn't really piece together the each dish into a picture in her mind. Okay. She just remembers whether she likes the ingredients yeah, put okay. in that order. Mm. So,
1: okay. So then linking this back to, uh, I guess, anxiety and depression, mm. um, is there a difference in uh, symptoms of these uh, kind of conditions if people are, I guess, better at visualising in their brain. So, um, yeah, I guess if you take, like, a healthy person and a person with depression, uh, and they're very, very good at doing that, would they have different symptoms, the person with depression, compared to someone who, who can't
2: yeah, do that? Yeah, that's a different? really good question. Um, we don't really know that, okay. I think. I don't mm-hmm. think we've done enough research to look at people who are able to have mm. mental and and... and versus not, um, yeah. and the mm. prevalence of different disorders in them. Yeah, okay. But um, certainly, for example, that's something we look at in treatment. Yeah. Um, not we, people who do treatment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, for example, if the treatment has elements where you are utilizing mental imagery, someone may not benefit as much from that mm-hmm. if that's not their, uh, their cognitive style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if they prefer a more logical, not logical, uh, verbal... So, just purely um, verbal analytical Mm -hmm. rather than kind of more uh, concrete experiential ways, um, then they won't really benefit. They Mm. won't know what you're telling them to do, Mm. or it'd be very difficult for them. And they won't. um. So, certainly, individual differences in cognitive style is relevant. Um, There are theories of, for example, in anxiety, worry. So, when we're worrying, it tends to be more verbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it's we're talking to ourselves, saying, "What if this happens? This would be uh, terrible." Yeah, blah blah okay. blah blah blah. Yeah. But there's also, you know, these are theories that people test uh, are testing that that is uh, actually a, a, an avoidance of the kind of scary mental images that we have of the actual thing that we really fear. So, mm-hmm. for example, your mum. You know, your friend doesn't come home or your housemate doesn't come mm. home on time and you think, oh, they've been in an accident. Yeah. yeah. So if you're a visual person and highly anxious, then mm. you would imagine that crash scene and that would feel very real and that's very distressing. Yeah. Mm. So then a response is to worry about it still, um, but in words. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that has different implications. So when mm. we think in words, because it's conceptual it's symbolic, we can jump from thing to th- one thing to another, and that's why it's easier to kind of cat- catastrophize. Yep. So this thing could go wrong, and that thing would go wrong, and everything would go wrong. Whereas um, when you imagine something, one event, that takes a lot of cognitive resources, and it's just about that one thing. Yep. So it's a bit harder to jump from one scene to another to mm-hmm. s- unrelated events. So one of the interventions that people have tested is actually to make people really imagine it out, the things that they think could, Mm -hmm. they fear, to make them realize that it's, like, take it to the logical conclusion, like, what would actually happen? And then you can assess, does that feel realistic or not?
1: Yeah, that kind of Mm -hmm. makes sense, particularly with things like uh, exposure therapy with when people have, like, irrational fears of snakes and spiders and mm. things. Oh. And they literally, like, give you a snake uh, to mm. go, you know, it's okay, this is not actually going to hurt you. You didn't die. That kind of thing. Yeah. You didn't die, it's okay. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense, I guess, in, in my brain that th- those kind of physical reactions are the same as the, the mental reactions you have with uh, distressing imagery and all, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It definitely makes yeah. sense. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> we have a falling microphone. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> we, okay, sure. we can blame Craig for that one <laughs> me set it up, yeah, so. that's right that's all your equipment as well <laughs> <That's right>. yeah.
2: <laughs> but yeah that's a really <sighs> good point um, in the end it's what what your brain is doing is learning things Yeah. Yep. so it can learn new things it can unlearn old things so whether you do that through real experience or imagined experience um there's similar, wh- mm-hmm. what the implication is, is that there's similar processes going on. Mm-hmm. So the, the the internal imagined world, mm. simulated world, either in memory or hypothetical in the future, that is an important thing because that's actually constantly going on in our heads. And if we don't understand the implications of what that does to us or, or how we can maximally use it for our benefit, mm. then that's a big thing that's neglected. Yeah. But because yeah. it's invisible, people don't always um, think it's relevant or mm-hmm. even notice it. So. Yeah.
0: And so are there sort of well-developed tools for kind of working out who fits into which category and how, how much imagery they have? Uh,
2: <laughs> I wouldn't say it's well-developed. <laughs> okay.
0: So that's, that's, a, that's a work in progress?
2: Yeah. I yeah. think a lot of that in psychology... There's not a lot of things that you can say. This is a well developed tool that is a, a definitive test of things. Okay. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things that the field needs to do, which is mm. agree amongst the people who are working on this, um, which is already quite varied and people use different terminologies mm-hmm. and different tools. So, yeah, we definitely uh, need to. Consol- Make that, consolidate there's, things. There's so pe- a lot of improvements that to be done in psychology, I think. Because uh, yeah.
0: in ep- epidemiology, there are, a l- particularly around quality of life and even like drug and alcohol-taking behaviours and that mm. sort of thing, they're very well-developed and yes. validated tools that, yeah. you know, routinely are used in practice and also in research. And so it's quite easy for us because we can say, well, this person fits on this scale and yes. they're in this group, whereas yeah. your work seems like it's you're still kind of working that out.
2: Yeah, but we, we use very standardised Uh, popular measures to kind of have a baseline assessment of, you know. But for the questions that we're interested in, it's almost by definition question specific. So there's not going to be one tool Mm -hmm. that can fit. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the nature of psychology, psychological science, which we have specific questions that we then test Mm -hmm. using constructing an experiment or so it's not just administering standardized measures. Yep. Which is not yeah. to say that standardized measures are not important. They're very important mm. to make sure that all researchers can know, you know, uh, research the reliability and the comparable. And, yeah, and, yeah and, and also you can reliably measure change in things. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, it's a good point. Mm.
1: No, really interesting.
2: Yeah, okay. So what are kind of
1: the, I guess, the, the clinical implications of, of the work that you're doing? Where do you see this kind of going?
2: Yeah, so... It depends on the clinical um, phenomena, mm-hmm. but any, you know, for example, well, basically it can help us to understand why some people have difficulty, you know, regulating their emotions or behaviours in either way, like too much of something, too little of something. It can help us understand why, but also it can inform us to develop better interventions that could mm-hmm. directly address the those particular whys. So if you can make it easier for them to... Behaving ways that they want to, then that's more successful treatment, basically. Mm-hmm. Even if that's just sticking with treatment. Yeah. For example, in the depression space, there's a behavioral approach called behavioral activation for depression. So that's very much focusing on getting the person to regain engagement with daily activities that are mm-hmm. potentially rewarding, because mm-hmm. that's basically essential for us to yeah. Yeah. have meaning, meaning and positive emotions. And one of the that's you know that's that works for a lot of people but pe- it's very difficult for people to stick with it so imagine mm-hmm. you know you made an exercise plan to exercise you know seven times oh sorry four times a week yeah. Yeah. it's difficult to keep with that so mm-hmm. you, when when that's a, something that you find difficult to do yourself anyway that's um a barrier so mm-hmm. we we've been doing lab studies that look at um how we can tap into when they're engage- when they're anticipating those activities, what happens to how they're anticipating it that mm-hmm. results in a lower emotion or lower judgment of reward mm-hmm. yeah. which is demotivating and whether we can train people or give people intervention that helps them to anticipate it in a way that amplifies the positive emotions and helps mm-hmm. them increase the salience of the kind of rewarding parts. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than the costs, like effort or yep. difficulty, or so that um, there's preliminary evidence from our lab that it does help people to complete more of the activities that they planned. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's one way we can use that to help improve the existing um, treatments. And in the self-harm space, the project I'm studying, which is funded by the Rain uh, Medical Foundation, it's to look at. Uh, how can we, can we predict the timing and the mm. kind of behavioral choice of people of when they engage in self-harm? Mm-hmm. Um, this is in people who already have a history of this. So it's a repetitive behavior that they find difficult to stop. So can we look at if we're tracking the intrusions that they have before that behavior onset, does that tell us something about their urge and their potential potential? Decisional path that they're heading towards, mm-hmm. which means you can then intervene at a, a time that's more of a hotspot where they need the most help. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at that in terms of this mental imagery-based intrusions um, that are about what they want to do in the future. So it's a flash forward mm-hmm. rather than a flashback memory. Okay. And whether that the frequency of that potentially ramps up as your urge increases, because we know that urge tends to match intrusions mm. and they go. I together. can see
1: this also kind of benefiting uh, some eating disorders as well, if you're talking about like urges and kind of getting that in between S- sweet hot spot and like for, for big eating disorders yeah. and, or like um, bulimia or things like that, you could yeah, be able to target think, those urges and
2: I think serious eating injury. disorders. There may be other things. Going oh, on, absolutely, but certainly mm. for healthy behaviours. Yes, yeah, definitely. Mm.
1: Yeah, okay, interesting. So.
0: So. I'm aware that we're running fairly yeah, short yes. on time. <laughs> um, I'll just, just I guess one final comment. So we had a recent guest on the podcast who's a clinical psychologist who yeah. deals deals with self harm a lot. That was his uh-huh. kind of main area of practice, and he indicated that it's more adolescence where yes, this yes. is at high risk. And so you're dealing with. Um, self harming behaviours, but you're also dealing with brain development happening at the same same time. So that must be like a really complicated thing to deal with.
2: Yes. uh, I think this is why it's important for this particular age group to do Mm. things that doesn't require them to kind of, you know, maybe they've learned some skills from a therapist. Mm -hmm. That's when they're calm, when they're not in distress. But when they're in distress, you know, would you go to a website to look up information to Mm. remind yourself of breathing exercises or, mm. you know, you want your phone to help you. Yeah. So if the, if your phone could predict when you're going to, when you're more at risk yep. mm. and suggest things that has been, you know, shown to be helpful but delivered to you in your moment of need. Yeah, okay. Mm. Um, that will help them because they don't have... Yep. fully developed frontal lobes and executive mm. functioning. Because it just it's also like a slight
1: distraction because you'd be like thinking yeah. about all these things and then your phone would beep and you would look at it and it be all these yeah. like
2: helpful things. Yes. Yeah. No. So we mm. can't, we don't have the capacity to predict that at of the course, moment because yeah. we, don't really, we haven't linked what's going on in their yep. minds to their behaviour. Yeah.
0: I'm assuming that's this is possibly leading into artificial intelligence and machine learning and that's possibly ah! an application. That's what it for, sounds like.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah machine yeah. learning is different. I think yeah. at the yes. moment they're just looking at, the focus is on external phenomena. Right. So things that we can get data on that's yep. external. Yep. But psychology and psychological science, certainly my focus is on the internal, internal representation yeah. of future realities. So it's and putting up. that internal
1: outwards so then you can yeah, get the predictive value yeah. out of it. Yeah. yeah,
2: Ultimately, that's what we act on, yeah. what's happening in our heads. So. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we might have to wrap it up there because yeah. I know you've got another appointment. Yep. Yes. Um, but we, I'd say that that's part one of... Uh, to be continued conversation. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it'd be great to, to come back. Maybe once you've got your rain study up and going, yeah, well, yeah that'd be great. We can, <laughs> yes. you know, we can have a bit of a chat about what you're finding. Be be yeah. excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks I'm very awesome. much for your time yeah, today, thank Julie. You.
2: Nice. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers. And that was our chat with Dr. Julie G.
1: I still have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> any more questions i could ask about that because it's just such a a fascinating area and um i know that with like mental imagery and things like that um there has been a like a small surge at least on my tiktok about mental imagery and how people imagine things and whether people imagine words or images depending on the situation and and Mm. the fact that people don't have that at all yeah Um, and it's a very fascinating area
0: it is. It's not yeah. something that I was really too aware of. Uh, I didn't yeah. realise that, that it was that different for people, that some people just couldn't really imagine things yeah. as, as pictures or images in their head the same way others do. Exactly. And I thought it was really interesting when you started talking about blind people and whether they would have the same perceptions. Look, it's
1: a question I've thought of before. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, I just, uh, it's very fascinating to, because I, I, I do know that like some people who are blind, um, they can imagine things in their brain and, of course, it's not the way that we would see it or whatever. It's, yeah. you know, it could be, like, different colours, but, pe- like, blind people can still see colours uh, mm. in their brain uh, and it's, yeah, fascinating, but only some people can and it depends, like, why it's, you became blind and all that kind of stuff. But, and, yeah,
0: and it's it does, Yeah, like Julie <laughs> said, it kind of, raises philosophical questions, yeah. you know, about if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a noise, Exactly. You know, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And so like, yeah. how
0: can you prove that it makes a noise because yeah. no one's there to hear it. Exactly. You know? yeah. Um, and yeah, it reminds me a <laughs> bit of a show called Black Mirror. That I don't oh, know if you've yeah. seen it.
1: No, um, I haven't seen it. Um, I've kind of avoided that show because I'm not very good with horror things. And okay. I watched one of their episodes about social media and it just freaked me out. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, it I guess it's d-
0: digitally horrifying or something. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. There's too too many questions that I ask myself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, some of the, because obviously every episode, so it's a standalone yeah. story of its own and so it's sort of got a different theme. But a lot of what Julie was describing there, was like, yeah, this, mm. this would happen on Black Mirror. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed that. And if you wanted to give us some feedback – how would they get in touch with us?
1: You can email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook dot com, or you can tweet us on Twitter at healthmeanswhat. So please come talk to us. We'd love to hear from your. Um, we'd love to hear any feedback or people you want on the show, or if you want to be on the show yourself. If you think you've got something cool to talk about, that would be yeah. awesome. Uh, yeah, so yep. come have a chat.
0: That's it, and it's we don't just talk to researchers and academics. You exactly. know, we try and talk to. A wide range of people, you know, from consumers through to doctors and...
1: Yeah, so even or, if you've been through um, something that you feel other people can, can benefit from, um, yeah. whether it be a, a mood disorder or mm. uh, you know, anything that you can think of that's related yeah. to public health. Or had
0: a health experience of some sort. Exactly, yeah. 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 yeah
1: we'd love to talk to you as well because it's important to get the individual perspective as well as the population level perspective.
0: Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, thanks very much for listening and we'll be back with you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.